Welcome to another episode of the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. The storytelling show that features The Clearing, where all good questions come to get asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors. A clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. So it's all to play for. So yes, welcome to the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. And a seamless count of four to bring us into the Good Listening To Show, the story behind your story show. And ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a medieval player, actor, director and founder back in the day of a wonderfully seminal uh, theatre company called Medieval Players that toured the UK and Australia back in the day. This is Carl Heap. You are very welcome, sir. My pleasure. And uh, um, yes, we have history. My first ever theatre touring experience was part of a 10-month tour of a show called Courage, based on the same source material as Mother Courage, with you as, as the director. And just to age us both deliciously, deliciously uh, and this may worry us both, that was, I think, circa 1989. Mm. Mm. So we've got history, but you are a, a, an original medieval player, and I think we've got you to thank for a legacy and a vocabulary of medieval theatre with all of its happy mayhem and anarchy, because your show construct was all about um, a different kind of actor you know you required one that was always at ease or, or an ensemble that's very at ease talking directly and informally to an audience and not hidden in the darkness very and important I, and i even borrowed uh, you know my own repertoire of theater experience i owe a lot to you back in the day to what i now do with instant wit the comedy improvisation company because that too is you know no fourth wall talking directly chaotically happily and anarchically to an audience so that, that's just to give us a bit of context. So um, you're extremely welcome. Um, I'm really looking forward to curating you through the journey of the Good Listening To show and podcast. So um, how's morale and what's your story of the day, Carl Heap? Story of the day? You mean, what am I doing today? <laughs> it's however you want to interpret that. What's on your plate at the moment? You know, here we are, so um, 2022. We haven't seen each other since 1989, but we've yeah. spoken on the phone a, a fair amount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, since lockdown... Um, I've taken a sidestep from uh, theatre work and I've been doing writing courses with a local um, organisation. Fantastic. I have to give them a plug. It's called The Writing Room. Um, and uh, it comes under the banner of Collage Arts, not College Arts. Uh, and they do all these different... It's like a sort of cheap um, creative writing MA without ah. the certificate in a way, because you can do courses in poetry and the novel and memoir writing. So I'm working on two books. Um, wow. Children's novel uh, about uh, a young girl in the 50s who has bad asthma and um, uh, goes to stay with an aunt and uncle in a seaside location and befriends a wind. Um, who Friends has a, the wind. Did a, you wind a wind. A wind. A wind. wind who lives in a cave in a faraway mountain with a tribe of winds and uh, who developed a particular bond with a girl. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that, that's parallel to a running memoir because I've um, been a runner all my life since about the age of well, 11 or 12. Um, it started off as a school punishment 
Um, <laughs> and um, I, I decided to sort of up yours by doing it twice and saying I was enjoying it. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't enjoying it. And indeed, you are a marathon runner of several. Um, you've got several. Oh, yeah. You got that. Yeah. How many marathons have you actually run? Eight. Wow. Before before hit by injuries, so my, my marathon days I think are probably over. But um, I can oh, still. So do you run at all now, even casually? Oh, yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I do five and ten k's, but that's about my limit. Lovely. And so the, the currency of medieval theatre and and your sort of getting going in that regard. Do you want to just tell us a bit more about how how that became your great sort of raison d'etre when you first got going in your theatre career? Uh, it's, I'll try and digest a, a long story. I started at uni um, and I arrived at uni with no sort of theatre stuff and like a lot of people got involved in plays on the side. Uh, I was at Cambridge and was hugely put off by the tea party world of the official Cambridge theatre, which is mirrored in the, the real business um yes. in remarkable ways um so i was on the fringes of that and um i was doing an english degree had a supervisor who didn't quite have the passion for english that i wanted from my supervisor he was very nice but i thought what's a subject that he doesn't do and i heard about this man in another college who was an enthusiastic teacher and he just happened to do medieval theater yeah so I went for that just because I wanted someone who was enthusiastic about something. Yeah, um, He was part of a generation of academics that um, transformed pre-Shakespearean theatre by looking at it not as literature, but as performance. So they actually added amateur actors, albeit, um, yeah. in things like College Garden Productions. Um, and he was one of that generation of academics that started to, it was really quite a transformation. Um, so I joined in and started putting on these shows in college gardens and um, found that this was very different from um, what was going on in the mainstream, um, that in a way that was the seed. So uh, that evolved into a trip to Edinburgh with uh, the Cambridge medieval players, as we called uh -huh. ourselves. Yeah, um, We did very well, got some nice reviews, banked about 50 quid at the end of it all. Um, which is quite something. Um, <laughs> oh, you made money said, in Edinburgh. <laughs> we said, well, we're not quite ready to do it um, professionally. We, we, we were tempted to just, just leap, leap out on there, uh, but we went our own ways. Um, and the core of us got together again three years later when the time seemed about ripe um, and um, got ourselves on the road remarkably with um, an Arts Council grant on the first tour supplemented by getting the Wimbledon College of Art to do the entire design. They made stages for us, did the costumes and everything. So a combination of those two things. It wasn't a big Arts Council grant, but it was yeah. a, a you know, little, little thing. So we got on the road with our first tour, um, paying the actors, which was un unheard of. You know, equity rates, can you believe Ooh. this? And um, I know there have been a dynamic trio back in the day of medieval players. It's your brother Mark Heap, who's also an actor, and yeah. then also Dick McCaw. And you were the you were the triumvirate that got the medieval players going. Is, is my remembrance? I yeah, I would add. Um, although I don't think you necessarily met him for that show. Um, Andrew Watts, who is our musical director, who um, sure. was part of the original project as well, um, who now plays. Um, we worked with so many fantastic medieval musicians who now play with top groups across the world. You know, they're yes. just. Um, they were doing it because they loved working with actors. They weren't getting Emmy rates, but um, yes. you know, they, they enjoyed performing. 
And it's the lovely idea of a medieval minstrelsy almost, but also just the mayhem, the anarchy, where actors are incredibly versatile. They're in amongst the crowd, juggling scythes, eating apples, stilt walking, fire breathing. I mean, it really is wonderful, you know, pre-Elizabethan at its core entertainment, which we owe a lot to, actually, for our current currency of what we enjoy. Yeah, um, I mean, people um, forget that um, Shakespeare didn't invent theatre and... Um, yeah. There's this still prevalent attitude that somehow Shakespeare invented theatre and he invented intelligence. And you get <laughs> these performances that make me so angry when you see people doing productions of mystery plays. Um, I will be, I will, I, 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 I put my foot in my mouth all over, you know, I, I'm not tactful. Um, I suffer for it. But um, the Globe Theatre did some mystery plays and I was almost shouting. <laughs> because, um that this is not it you know they are not rude mechanicals Shakespeare did a disservice people think medieval theatre was all rude mechanicals yes. where did Shakespeare get his actors from I mean they were there before him you know they yes. were skilled they they just happened to be not making huge amounts of money because there wasn't the building where you could your audience pay in advance Shakespeare was lucky in that he came out at the time when the first is what way could do that, but um, yeah. they were skilled professionals. You look at the Commedia dell'arte model in Italy, these were highly sophisticated poets, artists of their time. Um, and um, um, what we tried to do was to transplant that into the UK um, and put forward the theory that actually these performers um, were right you know yes <laughs> they were people like us not sort of some kind of yokel that um that bumped into furniture and um and i suppose shakespeare know, was sort of cheap still, laugh. shakespeare was still accessing the medieval minstrel in the form of the fool in king lear i'm assuming the idea of someone going around slapping the king on the head with a sheep's bladder <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, I mean, it's, it's there in the Shakespearean comedy, but it's just there in the style of acting, which which, yes. which is all about um, not needing the paraphernalia of um, um, scenery and lighting effects that uh, you can have an actor who it's like the magic wand. You 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 gesture with Sorry, my hand is going off screen. You gesture, you say the word. Yeah. And that's like doing the magic spell, the Harry Potter. The thing appears. So. Yes. If someone comes on and says, this castle, they point in the direction of nothing and everyone in the audience sees a castle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that's that's the beauty of it. It's, it's so different from film and television. Where and I, I, I apply exactly the same currency in the idea of the, the comedy improvisational thing of yes and. You just say, look, a castle, look, a squirrel. Yeah. And, and yeah. it appears. Hurrah. And, and by the way, you've become a real creative and artistic foil of Tom Morris, I was happily researching as well. And mm -hmm. your, your own theatre company, Beggar's Belief, is still going to this day, but you're famous for doing things on an epic scale, but in um, with epic scale, but with very micro ensembles to do it. So things like uh, Jason and the Argonauts is one of them. Um, and, you know, epic stuff back in the day, which you should be very proud of. And okay. indeed, Emma Rice said of you, you are gasp-makingly cheeky, so bloody funny and so bloody skilled in, in what you actually crafted over about 10, 15 years of just restoring the medieval uh, vocabulary to us all. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there was not a lot of... Um, a lot of the stuff got destroyed, so medieval became for us um, a term for a style of theatre as much as for a period. Yes. So we ran out of text stuff because a lot of it got destroyed or because it wasn't literature, it wasn't preserved um, and the writers weren't named. Um, yeah. So the texts available 
that can be done with a smallish cast uh, were limited. So we moved yes. on. The show you were in was um, Grimmelshausen, which was a 17th century German writer. The same source material as Mother Courage that Bertolt Brecht got hold of subsequently, I'm gathering. Yeah. Yes. And you've done Ben-Hur as well. And there's even a theatre company which is um, in Bristol called Living Spit, who, who have you heard of them yet? Not yet, no. They use the same uh, anarchy of doing, you know, epic scale stuff, uh, but doing it with just the two of them. A bit like mm-hmm. National Theatre of Brent, who I know uh, yeah, yeah. Some sort of access to. But, so look up Living Spit if you've not heard of them Living as Spit. well. Living Spit. I shall make a note. Yeah. Lovely. So let's get you onto the uh, curated journey of getting you into a clearing. And then uh, in, in the same sort of route map of the podcast, there's going to be some uh, a, a tree, which is a bit waiting for God O'Esk. I'm going to shake your tree to see which apples fall out. There's alchemy, gold, a couple of random squirrels, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake, as is our route map. So... Um, Carheap, actor, director, motivational teacher, academic. You've got it all going on. And you're a singer too. There is a choir that you keep singing to with this day as well, to this day. Mm-hmm. Who's the choir that you sing with? Crouch End Festival Chorus. We're a big symphonic choir of about 130 at, 150 at full strength. Um, and we do, you know, we do big gigs, Royal Albert Hall, proms, you name it. Um, Lovely stuff. Top stuff, yeah. So uh, what is, where is a clearing like for you? Where do you go to get clutter-free, inspirational and able to think? Uh, it's clutter-free. I'm in a room. <laughs> like a, a quick spin around the room. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of um, clutter knocking around uh, here. So uh, it's, it's a very cluttered room. But uh, mentally, oh, good question. Um, trees. I was born in India. And I have a particular memory of sitting in the heat of the day, escaping from the siesta at about the age of five, when we were supposed to be lying in bed and going out into the heat. Uh, and it was too hot to be in the sun. I was probably just wearing a pair of shorts and nothing else and sitting in the shade of this uh, wonderful leafy tree, listening to exotic birds. Very. Ooh. So to this day, your clearing is a five-year-old memory of Escaping a siesta and sitting in the outdoor sunshine. Yes, yeah, that tree. Lovely. Were you born in India? Very hot. I was born in India. Yeah, yeah. Missionary parents. Okay, so literally that your your parents were missionaries, or just your dad, just your mum, both. My mum was missionary nurse from America. My dad was missionary from England. They met in the language school uh, where you go to learn the local languages when you arrive in India. Yeah, it was a bit of a marriage market, and they were the last couple to pair off before they were sent off into the dusty plains of Andhra Pradesh. To a little yes, it's sounding very Rudyard Kipling. This is almost like a jungle book genesis we're talking about. Very here. kind of just post, post-colonial. post I was just after, you know, not very long after independence. So um, the days of missionaries were numbered. Yes. OK, and um, lovely stuff. So where specifically is our clearing in India? You did mention just now the name of a place. Uh well, I didn't mention the name. The, the village was called Jagtial, J-A-G-T-A-I-L, and it, this was the nearest big city would be Hyderabad. Jagtial. Love that. Uh, you Wonderful. Might find it on the map. There was no electricity, um, no plumbing, wind-up gramophones. Um, first experience was music was, you know, Danny Kay singing Ugly Duckling. Oh, and Tubby the Tuber, I'm imagining, on the B-side. Like on, on, on the wind-up. Um, yes. And, um, yes, the trumpet voluntary and Handel's water music, I think, were the, the other two sort of 
That's a great canon of early memories for us both. <laughs> I'm going to age us both horrendously. Fantastic. Yeah. So thank you. That's great and specific. We're in your, your um, it, I know it's not the Hindu Kush, but here we are. We're in, we're in an Indian scape under a lovely tree in the, what time of day is it you mentioned you've escaped? Well, high noon. This would, be, this would be the heat of the day. Mad dogs and Englishmen territory. Yeah. Very no count. Yeah. Okay, so there we are under your tree. So I'm going to arrive now with a, uh, there's already a tree there, but this is where we shake yeah. the tree to see which storytelling apples fall out. So, um, Carl, the invitation to you now is to interpret um, your interpretation of four things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention, which borrow from the film Up, for those familiar to listening to the programme, that's the mm -hmm. oh, squirrels, you know, what's never going to fail to, to, to be a monster of distraction for you that take you down your own squirrel hole. And then finally, a quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. So over to you to shake the canopy of your Indian tree. OK, so in what order? What do you want first then? Well, it, it's to open shape. to interpretation. Let's go for four things that have shaped you, first of all. Well, I suppose we started with one, which was being born in India, um, uh, which is full of fantastic memories. Um, the one I have to mention, because it has shaped me, um, is uh, being sent away to boarding school ah. uh, just short of the age of five. Uh, wow, um, that is yes. young. Shocking, yeah. Um, and luckily it was only for a couple of years, otherwise I think I would have been seriously traumatised. But um, it was quite a religious school and... Um, it had its good sides, but, you know, there was corporal punishment. Um, you had to learn a biblical text every week by heart under threat of punishment. Um, wow. So it's quite, um, quite uh, strange. It's taken me a long time to um, process that it did have an effect, even though I was denying that it had an effect um, in, in terms of uh, later life attitudes. But um, I wouldn't want to dwell on that too much oh. because... Um, you know, that, that's going to, the, the, the people that there's an alum, my, my older brother was there, luckily, he was, he was a year and a half older than me. And um, the uh, alumni group, apparently, he, he's researched this, is like full of people who went through the whole school and, and are just total wrecks. Mikey. <laughs> and yeah. is it one brother you have? I know your brother is Mark Heat, but is, is, is that who you're talking about as being a older brother? Mark's, I'm the second and Mark's the fourth of four. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah. Give me. Right. I didn't know how many brothers you had till yeah. I've asked you. So that's good. There you go. Yes. Crikey. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it's, you can tell us as much or as little about that as you like, obviously, but uh, that, that's pretty extraordinary to be sent off to boarding school at the age of five. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's I mean, shocking, really. hey, but it's what everyone did. Yes. In those days. So I wouldn't play violins. It was it was the norm. That's what yes. you did. It's the only schooling that was available uh, for the colonialists of the time. Did your other siblings all follow the same path and trajectory of that? No, just the two oldest. Right. Because Mark was only three when we left. We left in 1960, and he's quite jealous of the fact that he can't remember things that I can remember. Ah. Um, because, but he, we, we all spoke the local language a little bit. Yes. Telugu. Um, so I can still do the numbers one to 10 and a couple of nursery rhymes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, no, then we came, came back to UK and um, lived in various different parts of England because my dad was a Methodist minister and they move every four or five years to sort yeah. of share the talent pool around. So we lived in um, the Cotswolds, in Loughton, in Essex, in Holsworthy, in Devon. And when I was a student, my parents, um, their last posting, posting, booking, was in the City Isles, 
which was very nice to visit. Um, and they retired to Oxford. Yeah. And has that given you a perpetual wanderlust? Have you wandered around yourself in uh, medieval yeah. history idea? <laughs> yes, I don't. I mean, I've, London is now where I've lived the longest that I've lived. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, in terms of home, roots, um, there's no particular one place. Yes. And certainly I enjoyed, our, we did, the company did three Australian three month tours. I did two of them. And yeah, that, that was, I, I thrived on, and also on touring generally. I, yes. I had to gradually stop touring as the children arrived. I got five. Um, and and, and was out. your, um, uh, you know, escaping a siesta and going into the sun as a five year old, was that, that was just pre the memory of being sent off to boarding school? Is that the same? Oh, sort of right. Oh, yes, possibly. Yes. Yes. My halcyon days before I was traumatized. <laughs> well, although what's so lovely if you've still anchored to that moment in the sunshine as being a happy place where you go for your clearing. So it's obviously had a yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the heat as well. It's what I really miss. Um, just that that heat where you, it's like you move from the shade into the sun, and you've got to go into slow motion when you cross a bit of the sun before you could land back in the shade again. It's yes. enforces enforces a kind of take it easy kind of. And have you travelled back to India in the intervening period? No, no. I keep postponing. I've got a daughter who lives in the States. So if we're justifying travel, it tends yeah. to be in the opposite direction. But uh, uh, yes, I would like to go back and do a kind of sentimental journey. So. And I grew up in Uganda until I was 10 and I did a bit of a sentimental ah. years ago. But uh, I, I certainly have a very clear um pre-adolescent memory of it that would be very different had I experienced it as an adolescent so two and a half to ten so it's very sort of locked as a clean and crisp that's my memory bank absolutely yeah it's the contrast is so great I mean when I was there we didn't I didn't discover I didn't see snow until I was seven I didn't uh see a television until I was seven um so these these were I thought blackberries were that big <gasps> yes. we had a Peter Rabbit book where the rabbit was holding a blackberry that looked that big. Yes. So I was quite disappointed when I discovered that they were, they were little things. <laughs> Tiny. <laughs> so we're still in the canopy of your tree. Um, anything else that shaped you? Oh, lots of things. Um, theatrically, um, the Bread and Puppet Theatre of New York. Um, after I graduated, um, my wife as she was then about to be, was doing a languages degree and um, she had to do six months in France. So with nothing else to do, particularly, I, I graduated like a lot of people did then and possibly do now, but less so, without the clue or any pressure to feel I had to start a job that was going to be my lifetime's career. So I went to France for six months and ended up working on a building site. Um, there was me and... Um, well, there, was, there were three. There were three um, classes. There was the um, upper class on the building site, which was the skilled workers, which were French and white. Yeah. And there was the uh, semi-skilled workers, which were Southern European, uh, Portuguese, Yugoslav, as it was then, Italians. And then there were the labourers, which were North Africans, Tunisians, Moroccans, and me. <laughs> <laughs> So I was the, I was the stupid Englishman, um, and um, 
I had A-level French, but it was useless because I didn't know the words for bucket and spade. So I just did a lot of pointing and they were going, eh, Anglais, do this and eh, Anglais, do that. Um, so I had a parallel career tutoring. So I, I, I got home with my, because they, they, they would um, change. It was, this was in Nancy, Northern France, and people right. were very self-conscious about their, their clothing, probably more than Paris. Yeah. So the other workers would travel to the building site, there was a big commercial centre was being built in the, uh, the, the the glad rags, and they would go downstairs and change into their working clothes. At the end of the day, they smarten up and you know travel home, so people didn't see they were a dirty labourer. Um, but whereas, um, yeah, I, I I wasn't sort of affected by these things, but I we, we were staying in this um, lodge of this big house owned by a wealthy gynaecologist. Um, and the maid there, who was Portuguese, she would find excuses. She was polishing the front doorstep. She'd find an excuse not to notice me when I was wearing my cement-stained clothes. But when I was tutoring, I had my suit. I was giving English lessons to um, people. Um, she was oh, oh, bonjour, monsieur. And she was terribly sort of, um, you know, self-effacing. Uh, whereas she'd find excuses not to notice me in, in my other costume. But... This is a roundabout trip to, you want some stories, I can go non-stop. Um, it just so happened that there was a theatre festival in Nancy, so a, a dose of culture, and there was this American company called the Bread and Puppet Theatre of New York. I wondered how we ended up going, that, that felt like a brilliant squirrel uh, hole of its own, because you mentioned the puppet <laughs> theatre in New York, then suddenly you're in a French building site. So. Right, I had to give you the context there. I love it. Um, and they were doing street theatre because these, these were a company who did the original um, Vietnam demos, the giant stilt walkers ah. and, and um, um, birds of prey looking like um, B-52 bombers and, and you know, um, banners and posters and people with giant heads. Uh, and I was blown away by the indoor show, which was a mixture of puppetry of miniature scale and giant scale, which was sometimes political, sometimes profound and moving, um, sometimes comic, sometimes just bizarrely artistic. And I'd never seen anything like it before. They did a pre-show. Um, these were a mixture of um, professional actors and um, New York community amateurs, families, in fact. So it was something like I'd never seen before. Um, they went around, or Peter Schumann, the founder, a German-American, went around with this um, loaf of bread, which he broke off and was giving to people in the audience. They just broke off a piece and hand them a bit of bread. And it seems quite sooty, but it was, it was kind of sacramental, but it was very unforced. But also and, feeding um, the audience. I love that. The audience, literally, yeah. And the miniature and the the macro micro, there's there's your BlackBerry in there somewhere. You were from yeah, the BlackBerry wasn't huge. Sure. And at the end of the show, um, we were the audience were invited to this reception in 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 the, the town hall, and it was appalling. They were um, it was this long hall, and at one end there was a, a table with a white cloth and these little canapes. And uh, Peter Schumann talking to the um, the posh bigwigs, and at the other end were these New Yorkers um, sitting rather miserably um, because this wasn't the food they wanted. <laughs> they wanted food, um, uh, not, not nibbles of bread. <laughs> and um, they were leaving the boss to do the 
the, 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 the chatting. Um, and so we invited them back to our place for scrambled eggs and uh, got stuff from the local supermarket and had a little party of our own with these actors. And that, for me, was the moment that made me want to make theatre, I think. That, 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 was the, that was the turning point. Oh, lovely. So that, that, that idea of just mucking in together, but also bringing, ah, oh, the actors are come hither, bring them back with you and feed them scrambled eggs. I like that. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Great stuff. So we're still in, the, in your canopy. We might have finished with the ah. shape bridge, but how are we doing? <laughs> um, form, forming formative experiences. Is that what we're doing? What, list, give me that list again. Well, it's, it's four things that have shaped you. You're giving us this by the bucket load, but now it could be three things that inspire you if you want to move on to that next. Right. Well, yes, that was in, that was the one that inspired. That was one that shaped and inspired me, obviously. Um, hmm. I have to go back to um, English teachers. One of those many people who was had great, was lucky to have good English teachers. Yeah. Including one who... Um, Loved his Chaucer, as it as it happened, incidentally, as as was later to be. And of course, one of the most seminal medieval player productions was the Canterbury Tales. Your interpretation of that, we, of course. Yeah, we did. We did uh, four four of the tales in all. Yeah. Uh, two, two as puppet shows. That's right. Two as rude puppet shows. Um, we did the Miller's Tale and the Reeves Tale. Yeah. Both involving um, you can get even murder with puppets. Um, you know, Nicholas sticking his bum out the window and having a red hot poker stuck up it. I mean, you, you can't do that with live actors. This is Nicholas uh, in, Collett, I'm assuming, who's got his bum out the window <laughs> with a red hot poker up there. No, it was, um, and um, in the Reeves tale, there's all these people hopping in and out of bed um, naked. So, you know, our puppet maker, Ginny Humphreys, had actually was quite cheeky when, when she first produced the puppet. There was an enormous long, long, long sort of cloth willies. <laughs> As you <laughs> do. <laughs> Snip them back a bit to make them a little bit more uh, more plausible. Just her idea of the joke. But you, you can, you know, you can have these and it, they're, they're just so innocent. Little, little glove puppets. You could, they could be naked and be jumping on each other and, and, and bonking. And it, 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 you can get away with murder. It was, it was um, Fantastic. Yeah. Chaucer is so healthy. He's like Rabelais, who was a doctor, who was another great inspiration, actually. I should mention, yeah, Rabelais. There we go, Rabelais. Mm. Um, um, his books, Gargantua and Pantagruel, uh, as translated by uh, a man, an eccentric man called Sir Thomas Urquhart, Knight, ah. of, Knight of Cromarty, who uh, was a royalist who was at one point locked in the tower um, and... Um, who, among other things, tried to invent a universal language um, and um, was very eccentric, uh, but was a, an inspired person to translate Rabelais. So he did the first three books. And, and his translation is a, a classic in its own right. Rabelais loves lists, um, including things like um, he does a list for the five-year-old Gargantua, um, who uh, is one of the nation of giants. He's a king, uh, he's a prince. And his father goes off to war and comes back and says, um, so, my son, what have you been doing while I've been away to improve your education? And the son says, well, father, in your absence, um, he's sitting on his dad's knee, I have been exploring the uh, different things that could be used to wipe one's bum most effectively. <laughs> and then goes this incredible list of things like a page's cap, you know, a lawyer's briefcase, um, um, and it describes the different sort of effects on the fundaments that they have and ends up with this massive list with the neck of a goose, 
because it is downy and centrally heated and imparts its once you know imparts its glorious heat to the fundament or was that effect and um, great um there's uh, somewhere well, in there is the joke about a, a bear sitting next to a rabbit asking the rabbit if whatever sticks to your fur and the rabbit goes, I don't think so. So, of course, the bear picks up the rabbit and wipes his bum with him. <laughs> oh, under the one. <laughs> the same thing. But the, the, um, we, I'd like to say we've all done it, but wiping our bottom on a goose's neck is not something I've done. No, I mean, it wouldn't be very... But the animal <laughs> liberation people would be outraged by it, as would the goose. Um, <laughs> but uh, we um, that was one of our early productions. We, we, yes. we did a gargantua. Um and uh, used giant puppets and heads and little puppets. Yes. And um, there was that, that scene was a great one. Occasionally, we would get a person who'd walk out. They just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, but we were playing in, uh, was it Scunthorpe? I forget now. Um, <laughs> on, on tour. And there was a delicious moment when um, there was a double laugh. We did the bum wiping scene. And the kids laughed first in the audience. And then that gave the adults permission to laugh because if the kids laughed, it was kind of healthy. And that's the beauty of Rabelais, who was a doctor and, you know, was very much about mental health, I think, as well, about being accepting your, your, your bits that we tend to hide, you know, yes. pooing and having sex and things like that, and um, made them feel... Um, in an era when you know you expect a lot of Puritanism um, in in the church, um, yes. actually was is very liberating, um, and yeah, that, that great writing. I, I started, so I came to. By the way, that's, that's the currency of the theatre. You've done so well. It's just the the joy of the liberation of the fundamentals, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a scene in the the, the play that got me going. The medieval play that got me going is a play called Mankind. Uh, people, if they know about medieval plays, they might have heard of a morality play called Everyman. Yes. Now, Mankind um, is a morality play, uh, but it was dismissed by the academics because it has some smut in it. Um, because the villains talk dirty. So you've got a character called Mankind who represents man. And he's got these two duties, to pray and to dig. And he's advised by a spiritual counsellor, a character called Mercy. But um, on behalf of the audience, um, they are interrupted by these characters who are sent out by Mischief, who is played by my brother, actually. Um, and um, he's a kind of evil jester figure. And Mischief um, tends to go, is sent to put off um, mankind from his digging, distract him. They're called new guys nowadays and naught who represents the worthless layabouts. And uh, they come in and they, they get the audience to sing the original Panto song. And it's revealed one line at a time. And the audience have warmed up on the first line. It is written with a coal. They get the audience to sing along. Andy, Andy Watts is playing his music with a couple of other guys and um, you get a good sing along. Okay, Panto song, 15th century. Wow. Second line is revealed. He that shitteth with his hole. <laughs> audience. Fall about with laughter. One person leaves, <laughs> maybe, uh, but all the others just love it because they've been had, they've been trapped. Yes. Next line, but he wipes ass clean. This is this has gone a little, it's very sort of, um, it, it's really theme developing here. Yeah. Um, On his bridge, it shall be seen. And with a little chorus, 
Holic Holic Holic, which is a parody of Holy Holy Holy. Yep. Now, this was written by a priest, almost certainly. Um, and the priest knew his stuff. He knew guilt. Because these lovely, entertaining guys who've got the audience to sing this song end up bringing their friend who they befriend, mankind. Do they spend his money? Um, they, they you know, lead him to a state of despair. And in this state of despair, he goes, um, bring me a rope. I want to hang myself. I'm not worthy. At which point, suddenly, they produce gallows. Here you are, mate. Wow. And there's a beautiful turnaround where, my God, you know, that's mankind. We have been um, working against him, but we are him. We are mankind. And uh, we are responsible by encouraging these guys for bringing mankind to a state of despair. At which point, Mercy, who's been the boring preacher so far, steps in, drives them away. And yes. you know, mankind says, no, 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 no. He says, no, you, you have value. You're worth it. You know, and finally, there's just a reconciliation. And it's it's a powerful bit of propaganda. It's a brilliant. So there, there, there's temptation and redemption and all the epics. Uh, oh, yeah. there. And a devil. There's a devil as well, because uh, they, they uh, I'm cutting a, a, a play a bit short here, but the devil comes on, who's in visit his fantastic theatrical device. He comes in through a massive hell's mouth. And uh, he's got this net of invisibility. And he uses this to um, you know, accentuate uh, the downfall of mankind yeah. by distracting him from his praying and his digging. So, um, and people pay to see the devil. They stop halfway through the play. Yeah. This is how they probably did the collection. This would be a semi-professional troupe. Yeah. Um, they stop. They're about to bring the devil on. They say, hang on, if you want to see the devil, you have to pay. And they take a collection halfway through. And only when they've got enough money, they say, all right, come on now. And comes the devil. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, yeah. Because of driving the journey on as well, yeah. you get the, the curation uh, for us. Um, yep, I'm with you. Two things that never fail to grab your attention. Two things that never fail. <laughs> all things medieval. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, two things that never fail to grab my attention. Um, photographs. Uh-huh. I feel um, this is look, kind of a, it's a, I'm proud of my photographs. I, I've always liked my, my dad was a great, we've got keen photography in the family. And there's an interesting stage where I used to be at the stage where I was looking for photographs. But I feel I'm now at the stage where kind of a photograph just grabs me. I just, I, I, I get brought to a stop by something. You have to go, oh, thing. So yeah, that's, that's in my daily life. And I'm walking down the street. I'm always just available. Banking images with in, in through photography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely. Anything else? Uh, <sighs> Politics, things that make me angry. Uh, Facebook posts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All the classics. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, football. Um, Okay, and a quirky or unusual fact about you, Carl Heap. You've given us loads of quirky facts, actually. <laughs> a quirky or unusual fact we couldn't possibly know about you until you tell us. Gosh. Um, okay, yeah, all right. Um, I used to have smelly feet all my life. Okay. Right, uh, but, I, but on tour, I used to have to leave my shoes on windowsills 
and, and wrap them in plastic bags if I was sharing a room. You know, I, I had to take extreme measures um, to wrap them up. And this was since my, um, my teens. Uh, but when I discovered I had type 2 diabetes oh. about 10 years ago, um, I cut sugar out of my diet quite drastically. Overnight, overnight, literally, my feet stopped smelling. Wow. And by the way, because we're also going to pull you into the UK Health Radio space, that will be a very interesting uh, thing to go. be explored literally. and unpacked as well. Wow. It's that drastic. And I have not had a smelly feet issue since I cut my sugar down. Very quirky, unusual fact. Thank you for that. OK, uh, so now we're going to talk about alchemy and gold. And <laughs> you are the original medieval minstrel in everything you've expounded upon. But... Um, when you're at purpose and in flow, what are you absolutely happiest doing, Carl Heap? Is it the singing, the directing, the writing? What are you absolutely happiest doing? Um, you've named, named three. Um, I'm very happy in a rehearsal room. I'm very happy when I hear audiences laughing at something I've written. That, that's rewarding. Um, be it a play or uh, I write poems as well. I've done some poetry clubs and do funny poems. Um, I have an alter ego called uh, Professor Richard Pickings, um, who is... Uh, Richard Pickings, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> uh, fruit, fruit and veg, uh, the poetry of fruit and veg. I'll, I'll give you a little sample. Um, spinach may come, spinach may go, but only the child remains. Ooh. Or, um, Only the uh, a light cheap peeled is a viable uh, replacement for an eyeball. Keep one handy in your pocket in case of sudden vacant socket. A light cheap <laughs> lovely. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, so rehearsal rooms, uh, audiences laughing, um, singing, powerful, powerful, blast. Uh, not just the loud moments, but the really quite a uh, massive number of people singing very almost inaudibly quiet. Um, and so the moments, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just goose, goosebumps, goosebumps. If I'm if, if I'm singing or listening, it the difficulty with the singing it is your voice can go wobbly because you're feeling it so much, it gets quite emotional, and you have to control that and you know, let, let that happen to an audience. So, um, yeah, happiest. Uh, and writing when it's when it's in the flow, yeah. When 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 you're when things are rolling out, which doesn't happen all the time, but uh, it's great when it does. Yeah. And finally, to award you with a cake, and this is now um, where we're getting on to a bit of Shakespeare, where you get to yeah. put a cherry on the cake. We'll talk about legacy and how, when all is said and done, in the whole canon of work that you've expounded upon, you know, how, when all is said and done, would you most like to be remembered? Would you say? It's like a lot of people in live theatre, especially in days before things were being recorded, you know, videoing didn't happen, our shows pretty much, unless it was a little clip or something. Um, so it's, um, it's great when people come up and say, I saw you back in so-and-so and I was really made by, you know, that, that, that stayed with me. It was the best thing I'd seen that year, best thing I'd seen in 10. Th those are the things that stay with you. It's temporary. But you know you've touched people. Yes. Um, there was a woman who in Australia who um, laughed herself into. She came back and told us she'd laughed herself into labour. Oh, how lovely! Which was, you know, that that's one of the greatest compliments. 
And it, it, someone who's become a very seminal, you know, theatre practitioner, Emma Rice, obviously is remembering you way back when as being, you know, you got her on the open road of knowing there was a different type of theatre that would, would, would excite and, and, and pull her towards her own future as well. So indeed to be a, you know, the legacy is about encouraging others to, to keep the tradition going, I would say. Yeah, I, I would think that whole thing about keeping the lights on the audience and theatre generally, being confident in what it can do that TV and film can't do. TV and film does it all for you. It says, look yes. at this now. Now you look at that. It tells you where to look. Theatre, the actors tell you where to, where to look, uh, successfully or not successfully. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's that individual eye contact relationship that, that yes. um, is still a minority of what theatre is. And as you said at the very beginning, oh, look, a castle. And the audience <laughs> will fill it all in for you because yeah. there's a castle over there. It's live. In a funny way, my daddy is not in theatre, but I got some of it from him. What he was great at was um, he did these games nights and he was a teetotaler, but uh, it was a village hall in the Cotswolds. And I have a strong memory that the audience were drunk on laughter and tea oh. and playing silly games. Yes. Um, things like original versions of um, um, the, the drawing, right? Pictionary, you're talking about? Pictionary, thank you. Oh, yeah. Before it was called Pictionary, um, yes. live stuff like that. It was just a whole series of parlour games. Um, so I think from that, that was from him and his generation. Parlour games were, are things that are about people kind of making their own entertainment, but obviously the ones who are funnier rise to the fore out of that. And So this is a quick Captain's Log uh, supplemental, uh, Carl, in speaking to you. Do you remember the exercise called the Actor's Dilemma, by the way? Nope, not by that name. I believe, well, when I first started working with you, there was this extraordinary exercise where you divide an ensemble in two and then you go to either side of the room and then the actor's dilemma is one group sits down and the other stays stood up. And they, your, your mission is you just have to entertain us. Yeah. So, so what? It, t talk about that exercise because it was just so lovely and I still yeah. remember it to this day. Yeah, okay. The, the thing is you, you have to be taken by surprise by it. But uh, the rule is that the ones, and it's like it's got a time limit of a minute, probably. Yeah. Um, and in the course of that minute, uh, you do anything you can to make the people who are watching keep their eyes on you for as long as possible. And you ask at the end, who were you watching longest and why? And uh, I tend to call it attention-seeking behaviour or something like that, because it reveals all the different ways that you, the act, the audience will look at you. Some of them good and some of them not good. So people shout, make a lot of noise, wave their arms about. Doesn't work. Your eyes get tired. Yeah. People start start a story usually between two people. It could be something totally trivial, like my foot stuck on the floor. Can you help me? Um, and that draws you because there's, there's a story developing. Uh, people can take their clothes off. Well, the story is only how far will they go? Um, and in fact, you, you tend to look away <laughs> rather than look at them. Um, so there's certain rules, there's certain rules evolve which are in a kind of the basic rules of, of good theatre. Um, uh, the ones that actually engage with someone in the audience and start telling them about something. 
Yes. That that will work as long as they're not shouted down. And also I remember it so well because what it releases is is a vocabulary of just stuff that's subliminally there as to how we entertain each other in life and in society. And people yeah. start to do different genres of, you know, dance, tap dancing, stripping, as you mentioned as well. So there, there becomes a sort of a, a canon of different behaviours which are in our DNA about remembering re- remembrances of how we entertain each other as human beings, which in the medieval thing goes way, way, way back when to pre-Shakespeare, as I remember you imparting when I experienced that exercise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's that classic thing in the marketplace. You've got something to sell. You stand on a podium or, or a, a soapbox yes. and it either works or it doesn't work, depending on how you engage. And, you know, uh, you've got to answer that question. What is it you've... <laughs> What is it you're selling? And if it's if it's theatre, I mean, it's it's still walking. I find you, you put yourself on a pedestal, and the two things that people say when they come up to you: one is, "What's the weather like up there?" Which is they, <laughs> they, they all think they're the first one to say it. You know, everyone says it. Uh, the other thing is, what would you do if I pushed you over? Wow! Because somehow you're assuming height is an offence. It's an act of pride, and some people actually. A couple of people have tried it. Yes. Um, I have been pushed over twice um, in, in 10 years of doing gen- general stilt walking gigs, you know, open air fates and things like that, street um, selling, um, advertising Texas home care or whatever it is I was doing. Yes. Uh, but um, yeah, it's like actors step- stepping onto a stage kind of assume an elevation. Yeah, heightened um, action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm a little bit, it's kind of, they've adopted a certain status. What, what is it about that status? I'm important. Well, I'm justified in being important because I'm prepared. I've got skills and I've got colleagues yeah. who prepared something special that we have to give you. So um, that and justifies that. As well, people have a, an instinct to subvert it too. You know, the idea yes. of putting somebody over. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. In terms of how you gauge an audience's reaction and then play with it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're, You'll know this. Actors know this. I know you've said it, but we've, we've rambled around it now. Back to that that moment to hang. How you'd most like to be remembered? He made me laugh sometimes. Um, um, dad, granddad. Love uh, Things like that, yeah. I'm fine with that. You've been listening to the wonderful Carl Heap. This has been The Good Listening To, the story behind your story show. And whilst I've got you, if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I'd be very, very happy to receive it because I've been running it uh, on UK Health Radio and in Buzzsprout for about 18 months now. So, yes, if you'd like to give me any uh, feedback on what you like about the show, what you might like to suggest that I could do differently about the show or the type of people that you may want me to interview as well, uh, do get in touch. So you can email me about the show at chris at secondcurve.uk. And don't forget, you can follow me um, on Twitter at that Chris Grimes. There's also a dedicated Facebook group to the show called The Good Listening To Show. And you can hear a slightly longer version than the show that's on UK Health Radio at Buzzsprout, where my podcast is hosted. So until next time, I've been Chris Grimes. That was Carl Heap. Thank you very much indeed. And good night. You've been listening to The Good Listening To Show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's my son. 
If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from The Clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme, or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme, that's chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's... At that Chris Grimes. So until next time, from me, Chris Grimes, from UK Health Radio, and from Stan... To your good health. And goodbye.